Hi, and good evening. I'm Yaakov Katz, a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, and welcome to another session or episode of our inside analysis and look at Israel's war against Hamas. Tonight, I'm beginning on my own. Uh, I'll be joined a bit later by Shuki Friedman. Shuki is the vice president and director of JPPI. He's a former legal expert in the prime minister's office and has actually been serving over the last few weeks in the IDF reserves. One of his main jobs is actually on the legal aspects of this war and, and working on the international legal restrictions and how the IDF can continue to operate, conduct its missions, and achieve its goals while meeting those different conditions that are required according to international law. But to start us off today, and this is why we're a bit of a slimmer panel, I had a fascinating conversation earlier with former Supreme Court Justice Eliakim Rubenstein. Uh, Justice Rubenstein was the attorney general to the state of Israel for a number of years. He was the attorney, the legal advisor to Israel's Ministry of Defense. He worked for many years in the foreign ministry, was one of the delegates to the Camp David talks back in 1979 when peace was made with Egypt, was the cabinet secretary for former prime minister or then prime minister Yitzhak Shamir. So he's one of these Israelis who's kind of been everywhere, seen it all, and pretty much done it all, and wrapped up a couple of years ago when he stepped down, I think three or four years ago, from the bench at the mandatory age of 70. Uh, Justice Rubenstein, because of that background, obviously, has a lot of experience in all these issues that we're thinking about and talking about. And as I'm sure you all are watching what's happening in the northern Gaza strip where the IDF is operating, and particularly when it comes to the issue of the hospitals and the Al-Shifa hospital, which is clearly one of the targets that Israel would like to be able to go into, but finds its hands tied because of the fact that there are still so many civilians who are inside that hospital and it's not willing to evacuate voluntarily. What does a country do in scenarios like this? How can a country like Israel achieve its military aims and objectives while at the same time ensuring that civilian lives are looked after, are cared for. And I think that people who really know and really do care about this story know just to what length the IDF does go and what restrictions the state of Israel does put on itself. Well, there is nothing like talking to one of the people who really has been there since pretty much the beginning of it all uh, and to hear from him how he views things. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is my discussion with former Supreme Court Justice Eliakim Rubenstein. Justice Rubenstein, thank you very much for joining us here at JPPI. Uh, what I thought we'd start with is the whole legal battle that goes on here, right? And everyone sees the troops on the ground in Gaza. We know about the diplomatic battle that Israel needs to fight for legitimacy and to have more time to continue to fight in Gaza. But there's also a whole legal front to any war, which includes the legal advisors who assist the IDF, but also the operation itself. We have a lot of criticism that Israel is violating international law. And the day after, when we can presume that the Palestinians and others will go after Israeli soldiers and commanders and politicians in international tribunals. So how do you see this whole legal front that Israel also faces in this conflict? Well, before responding, let me join in sending condolences to the bereaved families. Uh, we've been visiting 
my wife and myself, uh, families that we know and families which you don't know and uh, going to funerals, so on, it's a, uh, a, I think for me, it's the worst uh, period I've lived through, I think, in, t in this respect. Although I'm kind of a veteran, I was a, a soldier in, in, in 67, 73, not, not a combat soldier, but uh, in the army. So it's a, a an unending pain, an unending agony. But to your question, uh, you know, lawyers always, uh, oh, there are people who say, I'm looking for a one-armed lawyer because all lawyers always say, on one hand, on the other hand, uh, in this particular situation, I think any honest lawyer would say that, that it is a one-armed lawyer. It is that our case is very sound if you want to be fair and honest. Because in international law, other than domestic law, uh, the uh, uh, politics around the, uh, the, the attitudes is uh, obvious. But uh, speaking in legal terms, uh, what Hamas has been doing for a long time, but has done in this uh, barbarous, barbarous way on uh, October 7, uh, is both a violation of the uh, uh, laws of uh, armed conflict the humanitarian law, the uh, treaties against genocide, and the uh, international law uh, stipulations concerning kidnapping. So you have uh, four points, and each of them can be easily demonstrated uh, to uh, enter our territorial area that is not, you know, uh, occupied or administered or whatever. It just, it's the uh, territory of the state of Israel, sovereign territory, and kill people in their beds, in their homes, young, old, uh, babies, uh, just name it. For, and then going to a uh, social party uh, in that kibbutz uh, reut and reim, and then uh, uh, slaughter uh, people just came to celebrate. Uh, there's no other way than describing it as war crimes of all kinds. And whoever says something else is uh, just lying or uh, coming with the wrong intentions. Then the question arises, which is now the, the main uh, topic, uh, the response. The fact that we've been uh, uh, in Gaza and doing the the uh, work that the army and our 
security forces are performing. The, there are criteria, and, and the main one is proportionality. Nobody right. knows exactly what proportionality is. I mean, uh, some people would say, what does it mean? Go into Gaza and kill 1,400 uh, uh, people from Gaza. That's the proportional thing because it's an eye, uh, that's not proportionality. Proportionality is, is many common sense. How do you defend yourself? self-defense in its uh, pure way and uh, make sure as far as you can that this will not be repeated. And uh, of course, you ought to uh, be uh, cautious in terms of civilian population. And uh, there's, uh, this is, I remember when I was attorney general many years ago, I used to, uh, repeat in cabinet meetings the need to be cautious uh, on uh, civilians mm -hmm. when we let's say did uh, air force uh, air force we had air force operations in Lebanon and I remember one Sunday I had a meeting with a few generals who came for another topic. And they said to me, look, you always talk about civilians. Yesterday, we could do away with the whole Hamas leadership in Gaza. I speak of 2003 or something like that. And uh, we didn't do it because of one reason, because the, the meeting was in a civilian building well, there like, yeah, forget how many, like eight floors, and this is in the fourth floor. So if you uh, go after them, you go after the, 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 the civilians of the building, and we didn't do it. So uh, the uh, question of uh, how to treat civilians becomes more complicated with the Hamas uh, modus operandi, which is, and this is now proven, there's no question about it, using civilian uh, locations, could be schools, could be hospitals, could be uh, public uh, offices, whatever, uh, for their military uh, activities. Which means uh, there is no way to uh, to uh, avoid that uh, uh, your operation will affect civilians if they continue this way. What the IDF is doing, what our forces are doing, uh, they're asking people to leave Gaza, right. to leave the northern part of Gaza. If, if you're not there, you're not going to be affected. That's a, that's a, 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 not a simple response because the problems are not simple, but it's a response. And uh, I don't think there's any decent international lawyer who wouldn't uh, ask himself, 
how would I do if I had to decide or to advise? Or how would any country do? Let's say, God forbid, if uh, somebody from Mexico comes into uh, the Texas and, and uh, kills uh, uh, 1,400 te uh, Texans, what would the U.S. government do? What would any uh, uh, civilian free world country do if they face the same situation? We do live in a uh, difficult uh, uh, environment, but uh, I, I think that uh, uh, our uh, legal uh, legal basis is sound. Of course, we have to be uh, alert all the time uh, because we do not see Gaza, the Gaza population is our enemy. We see Hamas is our enemy. How to minimize losses to the civilians there, but uh, Hamas couldn't care less about their life. And it's, what I'm saying is all facts. It's not propaganda because if they, uh, you know, people say, oh, propaganda. If, if, if they try to prevent people from going south, that is to stay while knowing that their uh, headquarters, their munitions, their uh, guns, whatever, are within this population. What did they say to this population? The second, I mean. But you're right. They 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 do that knowingly, and they do it purposely. But I'm wondering, you know, one one of the we've seen this in like previous operations, right, where the UN will come out with a fact finding commission, or there will be a report, like the Goldstone report after. Operation Cast Lead in, in 2009. And they could accuse us of war crimes and us of genocide and crimes against humanity. And then we could have situations where generals and soldiers and politicians won't be able to travel in different countries around the world. Is, is that just the reality that we have to come to terms with? Or is there something that we can do as a country to fight that? Well, I'm sure there are people, I'm not uh, today part of any uh, consultation machinery, so I'm not privy to what's going on internally. I'm sure that uh, the uh, IDF and the foreign uh, uh, ministry, other government uh, uh, jurists are, are uh, looking at, at the picture. The uh, uh, as far as uh, uh, complaints uh, to the Hague and all of that. Uh, I was the chair of our delegation in 1998 to the Rome conference that established the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my speech there, which I think it's even on the web, I said that uh, we are afraid of politicization of this court. That's why we ultimately didn't join it although uh, Jews were among the main architects and the uh, supporters and, and the drafters of uh, post-World War II uh, uh, treaties and uh, the genocide uh, treaty was initiated by a Jewish refugee from Poland, the lawyer Rafael Lemkin, 
of blessed memory who had uh, almost uh, alone to to uh, to convince that this is important and now uh, the the fact that the uh, the Hamas is after Jews yeah. I killed Jews I uh, oh as, uh, somebody calls his his, his parents I, I I killed so that many Jews and so on uh, puts it also in the category of genocide but coming back to the Hague uh, uh, I, our, uh, we have uh, arguments against their involvement. One is the connected with uh, jurisdiction, and I won't go into the, the details. And the other is, why was the Hague Court established? For countries that do not have the rule of law, for countries right. that are totalitarian, that wouldn't care, about it. Uh, and as you know, we have a rule of law. You were a member of our highest court up until recently. So, yes. Uh, again, please. I I said was, you, you were a member of the highest court in the country. Yes, so, of course, I, we I have a member rule of, of law. Court, exactly. And I also was one of those who, who really uh, struggled against weakening the high court. But I won't go into that. That's not the, the right time. Right. Uh, so Israel has a rule of law, has a strong attorney general and the, and the, and the, a strong uh, Supreme Court, a strong, a strong uh, judiciary. Of course, nothing is perfect, but we are uh, we can we stand in 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 the front line, or in the uh, we, we we can be compared to any judicial. And the enforcement uh, authorities around the world, and we are respected in that respect. So uh, 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 people will try to give us a difficult time. I, I have no doubt. But right. the, the if we speak legally, we have uh, good responses politically. Yeah. As you know, uh, the the uh, world is much uh, uh, more complicated, and uh, I, I I don't see myself as a, an expert on on that. But I I, I as far as the legal side, we have uh, I think uh, professionally and morally uh, good answers. Uh, the uh, and indeed, it has been a, a difficult period uh, from uh, any point of view. I, I I must say, I'm a son of a Holocaust survivor. Uh, and uh, my father lost his family. They were all shot into a mass grave in the little town, Shtetl, in uh, Belarus. And uh, uh, with the whole Shtetl was, was, was uh, uh, shot into that. Uh, the whole Jewish population and uh, seeing what happened in uh, in uh, the, the kibbutzim and Moshavim, the villages around the Gaza boundary uh, I felt a, a, a taste of Nazi operations yeah. a taste, a, more than a taste 
We lost, by the way, a family relative, an 88-year-old woman who uh, was all her life since the age of 16. She, she joined Kibbutz Berry. She's been there for, for all her life and, uh, and she was slaughtered. Uh, and uh, we went to visit here in uh, Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem, uh, a, a woman that we don't know, but we felt the urge to visit. Uh, she had twins. Her name is Vaknin. She had twins, and that's all she had in terms of children. And both were uh, assassinated in the party in uh, the that that uh, the music festival that yeah. night. So uh, that, that that morning, so it's a uh, it's a, a, a Nazi-like operation, and people should know that because I, I, I don't have to mince words about it. Now, of course, uh, we sometimes commit mistakes, but not this time. This time, it is a, 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 in my view. Uh, the, the blame is clear cut put on the other side and I do know that the IDF tries to minimize uh, civilian losses and uh, uh, I, I, and, uh, uh, I, I hope uh, we'll be successful both in uh, eradicating Hamas and in uh, avoiding as many uh, casualties as we can, because we're not, uh, uh, we didn't make the population of Gaza our enemy. We didn't make right. the Hamas is our enemy. Okay. Now, uh, much of the reaction internationally now, and uh, you can understand people uh, seeing a, a population moving and so on, that, that there's criticism, but uh, uh, I think responsible people, mainly politicians, leaders, uh, I don't know, the French president, all kinds of uh, UN secretary general, people whose voices are heard, should be uh, cautious in what they say and should learn the facts to their, uh, uh, to their and, and the, the president of France was here and he, he saw what was uh, uh, going on. The uh, uh, there is also, uh, and I'm not speaking now of of, of, uh, of President Macron or, or anybody else. I'm speaking in in, in general terms. On there's anti-Semitism. You know, an anecdote. In, in 1987, I was the cabinet secretary. The prime minister was Yitzhak Shamir. I was cabinet secretary to Shamir and Rabin. This is the Shamir era, and uh, I read a lot of material on anti-Semitism, which I have been uh, watching since the uh, 70s in the foreign ministry, and then now I'm the cabinet secretary. I wrote a memo to Shamir that we should start uh, monitoring in a more organized, uh, harmonious way what's going on in this respect uh, because the 
monitoring at the time was kind of sporadic between uh, various uh, uh, branches of government. And Samir said, okay, and I established an interagency forum uh, chaired by me that was issuing reports periodically to the government on what's going on, and we had all the agents. Shimon Perez was my friend. In fact, he was even in our wedding 47 years ago when I was a young uh, deputy legal advisor in the Ministry of Defense. And he was the minister. Shimon Perez was a foreign minister in 87. And I uh, asked him for a representative to the forum that we established, the interagency group. And what did he say to me? And that it's so typical, uh, his optimism is uh, optimistic. What you said, Ellie, governments have to deal with the present and the future. Anti-Semitism is the past. Why should we uh, deal with that? Unfortunately, it's not, though. And he later changed his mind. But uh, uh, but the the I, many of us were hoping, even in my memo to Shamil, I wrote it, many of us were hoping that uh, the uh, uh, shame of the Holocaust, what the uh, European... Uh, uh, civilized country uh, Germany did to and, and its helpers all around did to the Jewish people would uh, kind of push to the gutter anti-Semitism and maybe for a few years it did but uh, it uh, changed uh, soon and uh, and uh, here we are so uh, I assume that you cannot eradicate anti-Semitism uh, uh, totally. It goes back to the Esther book in the in the uh, in the Bible, uh, Haman, uh, and and the, uh, the idea that uh, this dispersed uh, nation that is uh, different from others, you have to to kill them. So it's there, but there are ways, and I don't say it's easy to uh, to respond strongly and to make those who, who make the accusation ashamed. And it could be educationally, it could be legally, it could be politically and in public diplomacy. But one shouldn't uh, despair. One yeah. shouldn't think, oh, no way to uh, to to do away with it. So uh, just uh, lift your hand up. No. It has to be. It has to be a fight. I want to thank you very much, Justice Yakim Rubenstein, for joining us at JPPI. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So. Uh, that was a bit long, <laughs> that I'll admit, uh, compared to previous uh, uh, interviews that we've done in the past, but also very interesting in the sense of looking at what are what are the different challenges that we're facing and uh, how can Israel deal with these different um, 
types of legal challenges that it has. So, uh, Shuki, you're with us. If you just unmute and um, you have to turn on your your camera, and we can see you as well. Um, I'm curious, you know, one of the big issues that we're facing right now, obviously, is the uh, the issue of the Shifa hospital. Mm-hmm. And Israel, you know, has to deal with the questions of this being a legitimate military target, obviously, because even though it's civilian, it has been converted and is being used for military purposes. How, how does this work, you know, from maybe a little more behind the scenes? Like Justice Rubenstein spoke to us at a very high hypothetical level, but you're theoretical almost, but you're, you're, you get, you're getting your hands dirty on these things also uh, from past experience. I'm curious how, how this process works within the chain of command and how the different approval process is done. Um, so naturally I wouldn't address the uh, current situation and how exactly it works now, but basically the IDF is, is um, fully and um, itself to the international law and humanitarian law and, and uh, just Rubinstein uh, describe how proportionality is hard to, to force and to uh, evaluate, but basically the army adopted manuals to follow and whatever you want to act or to um, target, whether it be a mosque, whether it be a house, whether it be another type of target, and in a hospital, you should uh, follow a certain manual that instructs you to the limits and the borderlines you can work within to, on one hand, achieve your military goal, which is permitted by humanitarian law, but on the other hand, not breach the law and not go extremely out of proportionality and it always work like this um, when you have a, um, a minor operation like now in the West Bank but also in wars right you know the uh, the audience saying that the, the when the cannons shooting the laws are not uh, obliging but Justice Park said that in Israel, even though that we're in the current shooting, we are following the law internationally and locally. So for Shifa and for other occasions, and you can follow how Israel act in practice, we restrict ourselves and follow the law and verify and ensure that we do the maximum effort to reduce the uh, killing or hurting um, civilians, in this case, patients and others that are not involved in the terror and uh, um, not combatants. And therefore, in practice, you work to achieve the military goals, but your hands are not bind, but do restrict in some ways so you will find yourself in the borders of international law. Well, you know, one thing that I think, in, and Justice Rubinstein kind of spoke about this also, is the this concept proportionality, right? Now, people tend to look at it and they're like, okay, proportionality 
is how many they killed of you, it's proportional for you to kill of them. So like according to that distorted logic, they killed 1,400 Israelis. We go in and we kill 1,400 Palestinians and we're done. No, of course, that's that's not that's not what it is. The question of proportionality, which I think a lot of people fail to, to keep in mind or to know or to remember, is that when you look at a value of a target, it's not proportionality of what 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 is you know what they did to me. It's a it's a question of the value, the military value of the target, versus the harm that will take place to civilians, collateral damage, or, or what have you. So it's 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 each target essentially based on that has to be reviewed, and has to have some sort of legal assessment. Unless of course it's a gunman running down the street shooting at you right away. Of course you the soldiers have that leeway, but targets like Shifa, like others, have to have a serious legal review, right? So basically, there is sort of a, a general proportionality, uh, the question of what sort of attack you've been attacked. And what is a proportional response based on your charter that enable you to, to self-protect yourself or self-defend yourself per uh, an attack occurred against you? But you're right. When you're talking about uh, specific targets like hospitals, like schools and others, you definitely look at the target itself, the casualties, and what you would achieve. Now, again, because it's very subjective, you know, for one per person or one commander, the importance of the achievement is very high, whereas the others might think that it's not so important, it's more minor. And then how do you, develop, how do you assess this subjective uh, parameter of proportionality? And therefore, armies in, in Israel as well adopted certain rules and manuals and enable the commanders, enable the legal advisor to follow. And this way, when we, you know, when you start the operation, you already, and you mentioned it with uh, your conversation with interview with uh, Justin Rubinstein, you, you look to the future and you, you, as Israel used to, and we have a track record of it, you're sure that one day the war will end and someone will try to drag you to uh, persecution right. in international tribunals, like the ICC, like other tribunals, or local jurisdiction of, of some court somewhere, and you're aware of that. And therefore, not only because the legal risk, but also because you want to bind the law, but you also know that there is a legal risk. And therefore, you not only try to uh, um, achieve the concrete military objectives you want to achieve, but also to prevent the legal risk that will come in the future. And we met it. You know, we had the Offer Tetsuka 2008 preparation when we got Goldstone report. And then we have a cliff edge in 2014, where there have been some uh, um, states approach to the ICC trying to uh, open um, investigations and persecutions and procedure against Israel. And there is already an open investigation that's been opened by Fatwa Ben Sud as a previous right. prosecutor. So we're already around. And the day after the war end, 
we'll find ourselves defending what we've done through these weeks or months within international court or other legal tribunals worldwide. And I know how we work today. I have very high confidence that legally we will be able to confront it. It's actually, I mean, it's, you know, what people also, it's, 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 it's such a big issue. The um, former chief of staff, Kohabi, for example, had to, was supposed to go study at one point in, in the UK, had to cancel that and go study after he was brigade commander in the US. Dorono Moog, who's the current chairman right. of the Jewish agency, there's the famous story of when he landed in London, was told not to get off the plane because of what he, things that he did, operations he oversaw back in 2005. This is a real, it's a real threat. It's a real issue. That Israeli soldiers and Israeli commanders and Israeli, by the way, Israeli politicians as well. It's true. history. And yeah, who, who who are making these decisions in the cabinet. And that's why it's so important. And, and you know, it's only, <laughs> and you know, I know you were dealing, you know, JPPI was dealing a lot with this. And I, I hate to laugh, but let's imagine just for a moment, and, and with this we'll end, but just for a moment, had the judicial reform, the overhaul gone through, and in whether it would have been right that it would weaken the courts or not right, you know, it depends who you would speak to in Israel, but at least on the international stage, there was a perception that it was going to weaken Israel's judicial system. And as Yakim Rubinstein himself said, we have a rule of law, so we, we, we have a defense. Now, what if, what if that had happened, Shuki? The world would have thought we didn't. Have, we would not have. We would not have right now rule of law. No, it would be much worse. The question. I don't think that the Minister Levin and, and other people that want that wanted to promote this reform want to completely abolish the rule of law. The the the, the more important point is quite different. Uh, one of the um, major ways Israel protected protected herself through the years against persecution in the ICC and other tribunals is complementarity, which means if the state have uh, legal procedures or investigation procedure to investigate war crimes that being commanded by its soldiers through the battlefield, and there is international confidence that this investigations, prosecutions, procedures are reliable and serious, the chance that the prosecutor in The Hague or other prosecutors worldwide will decide to open investigation internationally is lowered. So if you weaken the confidence or trust the world have in our legal system, you risk, you, 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 by definition, increasing the risk, the legal risk internationally, that people say, you know, okay, the Israelis they just had a, this legal reform, constitutional reform, they weaken the court, they weaken the prosecutor, we don't trust them. So we will do the persecution or we will do the investigation ourselves, and this is the risk of the reform. Thanks God. It's been blocked for now, and we still have uh, reliable procedures and institutions. And hopefully, when we get there, it will stand on our side against the possible legal risk we confront 
after the war. And this is just another, I mean, you know, when we think about the war, everyone has their, is hyper-focused on Gaza. And I, I was at a Shiva just before the, the, this, um, this webinar of uh, one of the reservists who was killed Friday night went to uh, went to the family out in the Gush in the Gush Etzion. You know, we're we're, we're hyper focused on on the on the war and the battle. President Biden now just talking about how uh, he hopes that within days there will be some sort of uh, release, maybe in swap for some of those hostages. But th this legal element, which people tend to not necessarily think about, it's not at the forefront is really a big deal and will accompany Israel and, and will be part of this campaign uh, even once the actual shooting on the ground is, is over. So it's, it's, it's something definitely to keep in mind. So uh, Shuki Friedman, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you earlier thank you. to uh, Justice Yakim Rubenstein. Uh, to our listeners and viewers, we'll be back, of course, tomorrow. We'll have an interesting episode, I hope, on Iran and kind of looking at what the role that it has been playing and how it's been using this conflict for its own advantages. So stay tuned. We'll see you tomorrow. And in the meantime, hope for a quiet evening. Thank you very much.